When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello listeners, Fass here with this week's How To Academy podcast, the show where we go backstage to meet the big thinkers joining us for live talk, conversation and debate here in central London. Our guest, Nobel Economics Laureate and New York Times columnist Paul Krugman. His subject, Trumponomics and the Health of Democracy, themes explored in depth in his new book, Arguing with Zombies, economics, politics, and the fight for a better future. His interviewer, LBC presenter, Matthew Stadlin. Paul, it's very good to be with you backstage at City Hall. I I want to begin by risking alienating perhaps not half of our audience, but certainly a chunk, by setting out from the very beginning what you think of Donald Trump. Oh, good God. Uh, no, I mean, uh, you know, I used to not believe that there were actual bad people. I thought that people, you know, people might make bad decisions, might um, let their uh, instincts get away with them. But uh, this is the, uh, maybe for the first time in American history, we have an unambiguously bad human being in the White House. And uh, unfortunately, it, it's not just his personal behavior, but it carries over to to his policy. So this is a very sad moment in American history. What is the best that you can say about him? I actually can't find anything to praise in Trump himself. It has turned out that effectively Republicans um, uh, sabotaged the economy as long as there was a Democrat in the White House. And they've, they've stopped the sabotage now that, that Trump is in office. So in some ways, for the worst of reasons, there is some positive economic upside to having him. Oh, and the other thing I can say about Trump is I think his uh, um, flakiness and poor impulse control are very lucky for us. If he were as smart as, say, uh, uh, Viktor Orban in in Hungary, I think American democracy would be lost already. You don't think you have sufficient checks and balances? We have. The checks and balances have completely failed. I mean, the, the whole system of checks and balances... Um, relied upon there being some degree of personal independence and standards on the part of members of Congress. And um, as we've just seen, we have uh, the the grand total of Republicans willing to show any hint of of principles is one. I mean, Mitt Romney stands alone. Tell us about the upside, the economic upside of Trump, and to what extent, if any, it is down to him. Oh, not... So, the upside... People like me spent the entire Obama administration pleading desperately for a shift in focus away from this obsession with debt and towards providing stimulus and argued that the economy was too weak for the Federal Reserve to do it on its own. We really needed more deficit spending. Even, Even when the economy had gotten much stronger, we still were in a situation where deficit spending was 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 needed to give it momentum. And one thing Trump has done is greatly increase the budget deficit. Now, it's not, not to very good purpose. It's 
corporate tax cuts, tax cuts for wealthy individuals, variety of tax scams and breaks, but nonetheless it does pump money into the economy. So there has been some upside. Now this is not because Trump had any grand vision. Uh, it's basically because uh, Republicans in Congress who screamed about debt as long as Obama was in office have suddenly said, we don't care. Uh, now that there's a Republican there, and so there's been some stimulus. Now, it's not huge. I mean, it, the, the amount of money is huge. The boost to the economy is, is a lot more modest than Trump would have you say, but still, there, there's been an economic upside from the fact that the, the, the debt obsession has gone away, at least for the time being. You're a man whose economics, I imagine, leads your politics, but reading you you are so anti-Republican. I just wonder cheekily whether you feel that your politics ever informs your economics. Well, occasionally it does, and then I, I uh, correct myself. Uh, so on election night 2016, I made a bad call because I let my politics uh, override my economic judgment. And I retracted that call three days later and said, you know, it's going to be bigger deficits. That's probably going to be stimulative. Um, aside from that, I don't think so. I think, um, I mean, my economic picture of, of how the world works has been pretty well consistent. I mean, almost everything I've said, particularly on these issues of macroeconomics, comes out of work I did in analyzing the Japanese economy in the 1990s, which I saw as a possible dress rehearsal for the rest of us, as indeed it turned out to be. So I don't think you can say that my U.S. politics influenced what I had to say about Japan in 1998. We're talking in early to mid-February 2020, and I wonder what your big-picture assessment of the American economy is at the moment. I mean, we are in a strong position in terms of the business cycle. We're, you know, the, we have full employment. Uh, we're uh, not much of it trickling through to wages, but, but wage growth is at least a little bit better than it was. Um, so that's fine. Now, we are starving the future. There has been, you know, we've now, we're, we're running trillion dollar deficits and basically doing no investment in infrastructure. Uh, we're running trillion dollar deficits and we're giving big tax cuts to corporations which are using it to buy back stocks and meanwhile we're, we're cutting back on health care and nutrition for children. All of these things are going to make us weaker in the long run. So we're, we're, we're squandering the opportunity to do something to strengthen America's economy 20 years from now, but that it will take time for those things to have effect. And meanwhile, we've got a, uh, you know, a pretty strong position, um, for, at least for the time being. Let's talk briefly about socialism, because some American political figures now do refer to themselves as socialists without necessarily really being socialists. Right. Do you think that's a helpful thing that they've done? Or do you think that opens, themselves, opens them up to hideous attack from the right? I think it opens them up. Now, the... The fact is that uh, there's a long history. Anything you propose uh, that went, might improve people's lives in America gets attacked as socialism. Uh, you can still listen to Ronald Reagan in 1961 explaining that, the, that Medicare will destroy American freedom, and it, it means socialism. And so, uh, um, and it's kind of understandable that some people confronted with that strategy uh, respond by saying, well, in that case, I'm a socialist because I would actually like to help the poor and guarantee health care and so on. And that's basically where someone like Bernie Sanders goes. Now, it's I highly risky, though, isn't it's it? It's self-defined in that way. Yeah, because it, the whole rhetorical strategy is based upon conflating Denmark, which Sanders has said he admires, and so do I, uh, with Venezuela. 
And so if you say, you know, the Danes don't say they're socialists. They're, 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 they say they're social democrats, which is what, in fact, all of the democrats are to one degree or another. Uh, and it's a kind of in-your-face, uh, shock the bourgeoisie move to, uh, to say, well, I'm a socialist. But when you really aren't, as, I'm not sure that helping the Republican strategy of uh, misinformation is, is a really very good idea. Can the Danish model of social democracy or the Norwegian model, can that work, do you think, at scale? Could it work in America? I see no reason at all to think that scale matters there. Of course it can work. I mean, it's, it, he, you know, providing universal health coverage is not hard. Raising lots of money, raising substantial additional money through taxes is not hard. We know how to, the, the economics, the technocratic side of it is easy. Now, the, we do have U.S. politics uh, we have two problems. One is racial divide is always a big problem. Anything that, that helps the less fortunate uh, in the United States will somewhat disproportionately help people of color, and that uh, immediately provides a wedge. It, instead of being, there's, there's a fellow citizen, shouldn't, shouldn't they be uh, receiving the same kind of, you know, some guarantee against the worst? It's, oh, that's one of them. Um, so that's always a factor. And then also, on a lot of things, we start from having developed this kind of uh, patchwork system of, of social benefits, um, and it's very difficult to move from that. So the case for a universal government health insurance program is really strong, but that means convincing 160 million people who have private health insurance to accept a radical change in their coverage, saying, trust me, it'll be better. And even if that's true, which it, which it would be for most of them, that's a hard sell. Many young Americans probably would describe themselves either as socialists or social democrats. Do you sense a sufficiency in the shift towards that for there to be a social democrat president in the not too distant future? Maybe not this year, but well, in the future. No, look, Obama was a social democratic president. He didn't do everything that we would have wanted, didn't do everything that he would have wanted. But in fact, he presided over a substantial increase in taxes on top incomes. Uh, people don't realize that, but, but actually the tax rates on the top 1% went up a lot under Obama. Uh, and uh, he presided over the biggest expansion of the U.S. social safety net since the 1960s. So it's not as if this, this doesn't happen. And it's, uh, I think there's plenty. The, the American public, uh, if you ask, you know, should we be taxing the rich more heavily? The, the answer is overwhelming yes. Uh, should we be spending more uh, on health care, the answer is an overwhelming yes. The, the public is basically social democratic, but it's, it is easily distracted by, by other issues. So I want to ask you about lobbying, about money, about influence in American politics, and just how big a problem you see it as. Oh, it's an enormous problem. Uh, and it's, the, the trouble is it's not just campaign contributions. In fact, that's almost become secondary because we're now so awash in money that anybody will, that, that everybody has can buy plenty of airtime and all of that. Um, a lot of it is, is the indirect effect. Uh, it's the revolving door. People are thinking about what they do next, and so they want to please the people who can pay them lots of money. Uh, a lot of it is uh, the uh, media propaganda, uh, which is, is driven uh, by the power of money. And I have to say, having you know, watched the Obama administration, there uh, uh, there's still this kind of deeply ingrained tendency to think that, that uh, rich guys uh, 
uh, with, uh, with really good tailors uh, know what they're talking about. And so you could see, you could see that, that even, even under Obama, who I thought was in many ways a fine president, uh, the bankers still had too much influence, and I think it was partly just because they, they're, they're impressive, uh, as rich people often are. Wealth and, and influence and, and, the, and the lobbyists leads me to talk about climate change with you, and we haven't even mentioned that in our first 10 minutes yeah. or so, and it's a huge thing. For the world, it's a huge thing for you, and you talk in terms of the deplorability of denial. Tell us just how angry it makes you that oh. people are campaigning against the idea that there is man-made climate change and the extent to which big money is speaking. You draw a parallel in some of your pieces with the tobacco industry in the 1950s. That's right, and that's, I think I actually refer to it as the depravity of climate yes. denial. And it's, uh, it really is depraved. It is saying that because of my short-term financial interests, I'm going to put the future of civilization at risk. It's hard to get more depraved than that. Um, and we've, we have seen the, the, the process, I mean, there, of, by which uh, interest groups manage to you know, cl cloud the air, uh, pollute the dialogue, which seems appropriate, uh, by creating the appearance of doubt when there is no doubt, by making it seem as if uh, dealing with this issue is, would be horrendously expensive when all the available economic evidence says it would not. Uh, that's a very scary thing, and, and the, uh, uh, the attempt to criminalize, uh, I mean, it, Climate scientists have, have faced uh, persecution uh, from, uh, from politicians and attempts to, to actually, uh, in effect, criminalize them for doing science. So all of this was, uh, it, it's, it's all the stuff that we see on other fronts, but climate change is the most important issue. It is, it is when we talk about things being existential issues, that's often an exaggeration, but on climate change it is not. Do you think there's a, a smaller part of this problem that we could attribute to a, a, a perhaps laudable concern about consensus that people, journalists particularly perhaps, like at least to leave some room for scepticism, or, or is this? Oh no, we're, we're talking about flat earthing here, really. Yeah, but that's the trouble. I mean, actually, one of the oldest columns that is collected in arguing with zombies uh, uh, was one in which I said that uh, if a political candidate said that the Earth was flat, the, the headlines would probably read "Views differ on shape of planet." <laughs> right? The, the both sides of them. It's become a a, a noun uh, that we use uh, in, in in discussion. The, this enormous tendency to represent any issue as having two sides, um, and the symmetric presentation of serious, certainly on anything involving science, uh, to serious scientists and uh, and paid propagandists as being on an equal footing is is terrible. The, the, the press has a the media have a still, after all this time, have a very hard time just doing the job and saying, okay, here's what the evidence says and what, what side A says is consistent with that evidence and what side B says is not. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Marquee TV. Marquee TV is an incredible streaming service that is a gateway to arts and culture. With my subscription, I've enjoyed watching some of the Royal Shakespeare Company's most acclaimed productions of recent years including David Tennant in Richard II and Simon Russell Beale in The Tempest. I've seen multiple productions of The Ring Cycle and Thelonious Monk playing in Brussels in 1963. I've watched Alice in Wonderland at the Royal Opera House and Giselle at La Scala. 
Marquee TV really is the most accessible way into culture I've ever encountered, and a treasure trove for any arts lover. You can try it for three months for just 99p. Yep, three months for 99p with the code HOWTO. Just visit marquee.tv and use the promo code HOWTO to dive into the world of the arts like never before. But just tell us whether you think that climate change and getting on top of it has to be the enemy of economic growth or not. How, how, how can we continue to grow in a meaningful way and save ourselves from Armageddon? Absolutely. So I get a little impatient. There is a certain kind of uh, uh, people on the, sort of on the left, but anyway, people who, who almost a moralistic thing. We have to put an end to economic growth in order to deal with climate change. But that's not what the economics says. Uh, uh, you know, people think that, first of all, they think that economic growth necessarily means more stuff. And, there, you know, lots of, most economic growth actually is qualitative rather than, than just more stuff. Um, and, look, we've had a, we've had miraculous technological progress on the clean energy front over the past decade. Uh, at this point, um, I mean, coal is no longer competitive with renewable energy, even without a policy to, uh, uh, to make that transition. And it would not take a whole lot for us to move to a very, not a fully decarbonized economy, but a lot of the way. And if you ask what that economy would look like, what would daily life look like in a, in a world that really had, had done what was necessary to limit climate change, the answer is it would look a lot like what we have now. People would still um, you know, run, have electricity to run their homes. They would still have cars, but they'd be electric cars where the electricity comes from renewable energy. Um, it's, it's never looked easier. The, that's what's so agonizing about this, right? The politics is, is stopping us from doing, dealing with the issue, and yet the economics has never been more favorable. And the politics involves Republicans fearing that free market economics is disrupted by fighting well, climate change. It's, yeah, well, fearing, uh, claiming. I think, I, I think that the Republican, uh, two things. One, just don't ignore the importance of just fossil fuel interests in driving this. But also, there is this conservative belief, which I have to say is probably right, that there's a halo effect, that if they do anything good, if the government does anything good, people will start to say, well, then why can't it do something else good? So if we can deal with climate change, then maybe we can also deal with health care, and maybe we can also do something about poverty. And so there, there's this desire, you know, they want to block any kind of positive government action. Uh, which in this case can literally be fatal to civilization. Let me ask you about trade and trade wars. Yeah. Whose side are you on in, in, in Trump's attempts to contain or to battle China? Yeah, it, it, China, is not, it, China is not a good citizen in the global economy. It's, it's a big enough player and a rich enough player that it should be obeying the rules, and it's not. On intellectual property, on industrial subsidies, China... Uh, is not a good guy. So Trump has, in just in that sense, tapped into a truth. There is a truth, but Trump's version of dealing with it is to treat the problem as being the bilateral trade imbalance, which is just not the, the problem is not that China runs a trade surplus with the U.S. The problem is these structural issues about Chinese policy. And the way to deal with those issues is to have a, a coalition of countries uh, that basically are, are for enforcing the rules of the game. So this is a case where the US and the EU and the Japanese and, the, and Britain, no longer part of the EU, should be operating together to pressure the Chinese into behaving better. And what's actually happening is that Trump is, is fighting a trade war with everybody. 
and alienating everybody. And unilaterally, the United States actually doesn't have the power. I mean, China, by some measures, is a bigger economy than we are. And Trump's notion that he can bully China into a humiliating submission to the United States, that is just stupid. Is there any space for protectionism? There is space for a little bit of, of slowing things down, but actually we kind of have that. So that already exists under trade law. I mean, uh, uh, Section 201, anyway, you know, if you get into the, the details. Um, no, what there mostly is, is there are lots of ways that change happens that can, that can hurt people. Technological change can hurt people. Uh, trade shifts can hurt people. You can't stop changes from happening. What you can do is you can try to put a floor underneath. You can uh, safety net. You can make sure that that losing a, that when an industry is displaced, whether it's through technology or trade or anything else, that at least people don't lose health care and they don't lose essential nutrition. And so uh, the strong welfare states out there, the, the Denmarks, uh, they they're just as open to the winds of global economic shifts as the U.S. But they have a. a they have a system which guarantees that, that you don't have a lot of, of suffering uh, when those things happen. The British government is very keen, it seems, to do a free trade deal with America. Difficult timing, of course, because it's election year in the States. What chance a, a trade deal with the States that Britain can feel comfortable with and maybe even proud of? Oh, I have no idea. I mean, uh, it's possible that the Trump administration might want to make the deal uh, but, you know, it won't matter. Um, tariffs, tariffs are very low between the U.S. and the U.K. Uh, actually, tariffs are very low almost everywhere. Um, bringing tariffs from 2% to zero is not going to have a significant impact. Um, the, the only thing that might have a significant impact would be an actual customs union so that there, is, there's no, there are no border checks, you know. And, and, and that's not going to happen. And that's not going to happen. And, and even if it did happen, America is, you know, 3,000 miles away. This is a, um, that's, that's very important if you're talking about trading with France. Uh, it's really, so the idea that, that there, the United States has very little to offer the UK here. We're, we already have almost free trade in practice with the UK, and we're also a long way away. So if we read that across to Britain leaving the EU in terms of Britain's relationship with the continent, your concern would be not so much about tariffs, yeah. but it would be about checks. Yeah, it's, it's, the, it's the frictions. The, the tariffs are a tiny issue uh, everywhere. I mean, the, the tariffs on, that Trump has imposed on a few things, steel, aluminum, uh, Chinese products, are getting up to the point where they start to have some significant effects. But by and large, tariffs are a really tiny issue. The, the, big, the big deal about Brexit, as far as trade goes, is that it creates a border where there was none. And now you can live with that. I mean, the US and Canada have a free trade agreement, and, but not a customs union. And so there are border checks. And we have gotten the administrative procedures pretty uh, smooth. And, Typically, trucks only have to wait for about five minutes to cross the border, so it, it can be managed. But uh, but that's the point. The point the 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 downside of 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 Brexit is is not the tariffs. It it is the uh, the administrative hassle. We don't know yet, of course, what sort of deal Britain will strike right. with the EU. If indeed it does strike a deal and doesn't leave on a hard. Brexit, a cliff edge Brexit at the end of the year. I, I just suppose my question to you is how damaging economically you think Brexit will be? 
Well, I've done some educated guesswork. Uh, you can, it, 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 and other people have as well. And so the, I mean, um, there's a lot of question about the short run, you know, how much disruption, you know, the, so the vision of, of 100 kilometer uh, traffic jams at, at both at Cali and at Dover is, is uh, something that we worry about. So the short run could be nasty, although I think you have a fairly a competent civil service and it's probably working to, to avoid that. Um, and that would probably only happen surely if there's a, a sort of no deal right Brexit. and, and, um, and barring, then, yeah. barring that well it's not just no deal it's also that you have to have the structure in place to do the customs check so the Canada has got that down and the US has got that down at the Canadian border not clear that the UK is ready for that uh, but uh, getting past that point then we're talking about it will make trade harder it will make it harder to run just-in-time production operations that depend upon components coming from Europe and vice versa, um, and a very iffy uh, guess, but based on what we can try to infer, is that in the long run, Britain will be 2 or 3% poorer than it would otherwise. Do you see a conflict between a free trade deal with the EU that suits Britain, or that we feel suits ourselves, and a free trade deal with America? No. No, these are all, I mean, again, we have virtually free trade in, in everything but agricultural products anyway. So, no, these, these are, there's no real conflict in, in these things. Let me ask you briefly about the euro. You haven't been a fan. Right. You were rather bleak about the prospects, I think, of Greece staying in the euro back in 2015. Yeah. That hasn't yet come to pass and, and seems unlikely to come to pass. But what essentially is your problem with the euro? The problem is that the... There are some preconditions to have a single currency work. Uh, uh, you need really need a banking union so that someone is there to bail out the banks of a troubled region. Uh, you need a, uh, a fiscal union so that so that if a, if a, a region has a, 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 a an economic downturn, it doesn't turn into a fiscal crisis as well. Uh, you need um, fair. It helps to have some mobility of labor so that people can move freely. And Europe just doesn't meet those conditions. And so what you had um, in the euro crisis was that uh, – I like to compare Spain and Florida. Actually, the economics were quite similar. Both had huge housing bubbles, a lot of vacation homes that burst. Florida automatically – received a lot of aid from Washington. The banks were bailed out by Washington. The um, retirement programs, the health care programs were funded by Washington so that the blow to Florida was not that severe. The same blow was catastrophic for several years for Spain. Now, the euro struggled through this thing, uh, thanks largely to heroic leadership by Mario Draghi at the European Central Bank. Um, but if to say that, well, okay, after five years of hell, uh, Southern Europe is sort of back where it was, except for Greece, which is not, is not to say that the euro works. And the same thing can happen all over again. Europe is just not suited to have a single currency. Paul, your book is called Arguing with Zombies. You know that in Britain, some of us have been rather sceptical recently about experts, particularly in the build-up right. to the Brexit referendum. Uh, I just wonder why we should be listening to you. Well, um, I think partly is actually read the book and look at what I was saying about uh, austerity programs, what I was saying about the euro before you know, things went bluey. And I, I think I've gotten a lot of things right. And more to the point, I'm, 
I try to explain the economic logic uh, on which it's based. I, I don't do stuff that's just based on gut feelings and try not to let my political sentiments color it. So uh, I hope that's worth something. I, God knows I don't believe that credentials uh, count very much, but uh, I, I think quality of argument and track record do. You write about your methodology. Just in synopsis, tell us a little bit about how you do your economics. Oh, I mean, there's different kinds. I mean, I talk about, let, let's talk about how I do economic journalism. Um, which is, the, first, I try to mostly focus on uh, easy issues, because the, the stuff where there are clear answers gives you plenty to write about. So there are hard issues. What is the effectiveness of quantitative easing? I don't write about that for the New York Times, because that's, the, that's too, you know, it, it's, a, it's a real issue, there's a real debate, but it's not something to be settled on the op-ed page. I try to write in English, uh, very important, don't, you know, avoid the jargon, uh, and then because so much of the argumentation that actually takes place is in bad faith, I've decided that to not pretend otherwise. To say, to say that people, when people are clearly being dishonest, to say that they're clearly being dishonest, and to, uh, and when they're clearly are being dishonest because they have, are effectively being paid or politically bullied into being dishonest, to not hide that fact from my readers. So it's both ground stuff and solid economics, stuff where we actually know the answers. There are many things where we don't, but we're, the, I write about the things where we do know the answers, and then I try to be honest about, about the dishonesty that pervades the debate. And the zombies with whom you're arguing are not people, but ideas. That's right. The zombie idea is an idea that has been proved false, should be dead, but still eating our brains. Two more questions. Very, very briefly sum up Keynesian economics, because you're essentially a subscriber. Right. Keynesian economics says that, that many times... The economy is depressed, not because of any fundamental problem, but because people are just not spending enough. And, and, and when that happens, um, it's sometimes the job of the government to do the spending that the private sector will not. So deficit spending in a time of depression is helpful. And very finally, what do you see as the biggest challenge to economic stability in the West in the coming five, ten years? Oh, I don't know where the next shock comes from, but I do know that our shock absorbers are pretty much shot. There's almost no room to cut interest rates. Uh, you'd have to respond with strong Keynesian fiscal policies if there's another bad shock. And I don't think we have governments that are either strong enough or smart enough to do that effectively. So the, when something goes wrong, and something always does go wrong, we're going to find that the very smart people at the Euro European Central Bank and the Federal Reserve don't have the tools and that the people who do have the tools, which would be the government of Germany or the government of the United States, are not that smart. So this is, this is what scares me, is that we just don't have a... Uh, it's not that I know what the next bad thing will be, but we don't have the defenses to deal with it when it comes. Paul Krugman, thank you very much indeed. You have to take to the stage, but thank you for doing the How To Academy podcast. Thank you very much. This week's guest was Paul Krugman. His host was Matthew Stadlin. The producer was me, Vas Christodoulou. And editing was by John Doughty. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate, review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also tweet us at HowToAcademy and tell us who you want to hear in future episodes. And as ever, you can find an archive full of interviews with the preeminent scholars, artists, scientists and leaders of our age at HowToAcademy.com. Join us again next week when we'll be meeting legendary Chinese artist and activist Ai Weiwei. Until then, 
I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening. <laughs>